This is the Bigger Pockets Podcast, show 761. You have about 34 doors now. 34, I think, is what you said. When you were a kid, sleeping on the floor, all you wanted was a bed of your own and a house. Yes. How does it feel to achieve what you've achieved? It's, it's unreal. Like, it's sometimes like, this is me. What's going on, everyone? This is David Green, your host of the Bigger Pockets Real Estate Podcast, joined today by that echo you hear in the background, Rob Abasolo, with an episode that, frankly, I don't have words for. If you don't like to cry, you might want to just turn this one off right now, mm-hmm. because even the toughest person out there is probably going to shed a little tear and be incredibly inspired. Yeah, it's a story of perseverance that, yeah, I think hit home for me and will hit home for everybody at home. What do you think? Today's guest, Yamu Kamara, is like the poster child for bigger pocket success. I mean, she built in three years a portfolio that you will be shocked by. And she just used the basic techniques we talk about. Before we get to this interview with Yamu, which I know you're all going to love, and I'm going to ask you ahead of time to please share this podcast with other people. Even if they're not super into real estate, they will be after listening to this. I'm going to throw it to Rob for today's quick tip. Hmm. Ooh, we got a little, little curveball here, David. Well, lucky, lucky for you and for everyone at home, I came prepared. And my quick tip is, I'm not stalling, buy your contractor lunch. You might think you want real estate, but that's not true. What you really want is passive income. With new investors struggling to find deals or get enough money to buy them and veteran landlords tired of the constant tenant phone calls, is there a better alternative? Actually, there is. Short notes from Connect Invest. Connect Invest is an online investing platform that allows you to easily participate in passive real estate investing, and all you need is $500 to start. Short Notes collectively funds a diversified portfolio of commercial and residential real estate projects across acquisition, construction, and development phases. You'll earn a fixed monthly income without the hassle of owning or managing real estate. Head to connectinvest.com BP to create your account. Fund your digital wallet with at least $500. Select from 6, 12, and 24-month short notes with annualized return rates up to 9%. Then sit back and let your monthly returns roll in. Join today by visiting connectinvest.com slash VP. Connectinvest.com slash VP. What's better than low money down? No money down. Now through rent to retirement, you can buy a brand new construction turnkey rental property for no money down. Wait, hold on. This can't be right. We need to double check with Zach, Rental Retirement CEO. Oh, hey, Rob. Zach, how the heck are you selling turnkey rental properties for $0 down? <laughs> it's not that complicated, Rob. Rent to Retirement has new construction properties up to $20,000 below retail prices. We also have investor loans with rates as low as 3.99% and down payment options as low as 5% or sometimes even zero money down. You get all the cash flow, appreciation, and equity for as little as zero money down. That's an infinite return. Oh, wait, wait. Let me get on this before we tell it to the whole Bigger Pockets audience. Just head to renttoretirement.com. That's renttoretirement.com or text REI to 33777. That's REI to 33777 to learn more about how you can get started investing with no money down today. Get your next new construction property at a steep discount or invest with no money down. Head to renttoretirement.com today. Passive income without the property headache? It's possible. There's a way to invest passively in real estate and get monthly income without any tenants, maintenance, or property management. The wealthy have been doing this for years, and if you're an accredited or high net worth investor, you too can collect cash flow without the headaches that come from owning rentals. How? By investing in a private real estate fund with PPR Capital Management. 
PPR's co-founder, Dave Van Horn, wrote the book on real estate note investing for BP. But he's not just investing in notes. Dave and his team also have an extensive background in commercial real estate. And with PPR Capital Management, they're strategically investing in both notes and commercial real estate nationwide. With over half a billion dollars in assets under management, PPR has provided individuals with a steady source of truly passive income since 2007 without ever missing a payment. Check them out at investwithppr.com. Again, if you're looking to get monthly passive income from an experienced team with a strong track record, go to investwithppr.com today. All right, without any further ado, let's get to Yamu. Welcome, Yamu, to the Bigger Pockets podcast. How are you this morning? I'm doing great. Thank you for having me. Yes, let's jump right into this thing. I want to hear about your story. So tell me, where are you originally from? And can you give us an idea how you grew up? Sure. So my name is Yamundao Kumara, but I go by Yamu for short. I'm from West Africa, a small country called the Gambia, West Coast. It's by Senegal, a little country inside Senegal, literally. So it's about 2 point something million. I'm the seventh child uh, of my family. And yeah, I I grew up in that small village. I lost my mom when I was two, and I lost my dad when I was 11. So I was raised by my elder sister. And yeah, there's a little background about me. So what was it like growing up there? Most of us have not traveled to the continent of Africa, much less where you're from. Tell us a little bit about what daily life was like. Yeah, so it's more of... We live in extended family. So when my um, my dad, when my mom passed, I was two. Uh, when my dad passed, before my dad passed, he was really sick. So my sister was forced to get married. So she took me with her and my brother, my elder brother, was like four or five years older than me. So I grew up as an orphan in her in-laws house. Yeah, it was hard growing up in the uh, in an extended family uh, that you don't belong in. Because usually we live in family. So let's say a family member, like a husband has maybe four wives or five wives. And they have kids. So that household is all, let's say, the last name is Green. It's like Green Kunda, meaning everybody in the house is called is Green. So you coming in with a different last name, it's like you don't belong. There's some activities that you will not participate in because you're not a child of that household. So it was clear growing up from an emotional standpoint, you were a stranger in a sense in the house. I mean, they knew who you were, but you were not welcome with open arms as if you were one of the kids. There was preferential treatment. You had a, at a very young age, you had to experience a lack of control and the pain that comes from not really having control over the outcome of your own life. Yes, basically. So, I mean, you were thrown into a situation you had very little control. Sounds like there was a lot of pain. Uh, did you have your own room? Were you sharing a room with other people? What was that like? No. So sometimes I would come in like as a child, just playing with other kids outside. And I just run in to go drink water. And there's a meeting about us, about me and my brother being returned. So I always thought, oh, so we don't belong here. It, and it really hurts as a child. I saw this meme uh, on uh, like saying on TikTok the other day, and it clicked to me. I was like, this is how it feels. Like, you don't know what pain is until you live in somebody's house who doesn't really want you there. And I was like, that was me. Like, I was like, that clearly explained my life. So I wasn't allowed to sleep on the bed. So I would lay on the floor. And when I say floor, I mean like sand floor, not like c- like cement, not like carpet or anything. So me uh, sleeping on the floor, an eight-year-old, nine-year-old girl, I would have bed box. Sometimes worms would come and they would touch me and I will just wake up. So my brother made me this touchlight, flashlight, you guys call it here. And I'll just put use batteries there. And that night, I'll just wake up and I'll kill the veil box on the wall. So I guess from there, 
I always, I, I was always obsessed with houses because I never really had my father's house. Sometimes when I visit for holidays, we would not eat. Sometimes, sometimes we eat once a day, and sometimes when I go one time, it was a rainy season, the summer holidays, and we would have to get up because the water was coming inside the house. That's how poor we were. <laughs> so even though the family that I lived with are not rich, still a village, but it's a better village for where my it's better than my dad's condition. Yeah, yeah. So, well, so yeah, yeah. So yeah. me laying down there as a girl, I always like say I'm obsessed with houses. So when I see friends whose houses after school, I like to go to the houses, and I always wonder when they're gonna get this house, when they're gonna buy a house. But I didn't think buying multiple houses. I was just saying, just the idea of having a house. Yeah, yeah. You mentioned in that TikTok. Well, first of all, thank you so much, Yamu, for sharing. I'm sorry. No, no, no. <laughs> um. You mentioned in that TikTok that uh, when you're not wanted in the home, I think that's when you experience yeah. the pain, right? And so yeah. Yeah. I, I'm wanting to know, was that really the moment, that that inspiration where you're like, I am going to find my own place one day. I'm going to have my own bed. Um, was that sort of the beginning of your your real estate dreams or, or did it come later on in life? Yes, that's, 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 that's where it started. I always knew one day I'm going to make it and one day I'm going to buy a home. Like that was my dream to say one day I also have a home and a bed, something like a house of my own. Would you, is that your why? Is that today your why is like the reason you do all this is basically to to fulfill that dream? I have multiple wives, but that but that's one of them. What else you got? I want to know. Poverty. I don't. I don't want to. I don't want my child to go through any of those things that I went through, ever. You know, that's something as you were talking, Yamu, that I thought of the stereotype that. Wealth and money is the root of all evil. The people that say like it's the wealthy people that are the problem. And I was thinking about for you growing up in a house, I'm sure the the genesis of why people felt like they didn't want you guys there, they talked about you leaving, was there was not enough money to go around. There was none. If you were not eating maybe one time a day, they were incredibly financially stressed. And so you're a burden in a financial sense, you and your brother on this other family, and they're thinking from their flesh is what's the easiest way to lighten my own load. And the emotional pain that has on someone else, as you experienced, was intense. Now, fast forwarding to where you are now, you have 90 units that you own and more under contract. You're making $80,000 a month. You've come a long way from sleeping on a floor, having to wake up to, to kill bed bugs that were looking to crawl into where you were. Like, I know I just kind of gave a spoiler alert to everybody listening to this, but it is a fantastic story. This is like something right out of a comic book. Like, do you know that you're a superhero? Oh, thank you. Okay, well, we're going to find out how you did this, right? Like, what happened where I you went from just wanting a bed to owning multiple, multiple, almost 100 units at this point. So let's go back a little bit again. We understand that life was challenging in other ways other than just financial, especially as a woman in a male-dominated society. Can you list some of the things that you were not supposed to accomplish? Yes. So I, I this is this is not how the life of a girl from my village supposed to be. I'm the only one that went to college in my village. Um, for for where growing up, a girl is supposed to just go to all the way to maybe middle school and then you're supposed to get married. For me it was hard for my aunties to push and my sister to push for my uncles because the male have more say in the woman's life, especially when you're getting married, your uncles take care of it. So by the time I'm like sixteen and seventeen, they're already thinking of arranged marriage. They already think of who you're gonna get married to is already arranged for you. So for me, for them to even let me to go to high school, to college, was, was a big deal. 
talk less of coming to America by myself and not being married. So by the time I was in high school, most of my friends that I grew up, they already had two kids, already married and everything. Yamu, did you have to fight to go to high school? Was that like a really big battle with sort of, I guess, your family or your extended family in the household? I mean, I, I got to imagine that probably didn't come easy, so... Oh, no, I didn't have to fight. My aunties had to fight. I had to go through my aunties. I don't have the audacity to stand up to my uncles. So my aunties will say, at least she's smart at school. The principal says she's really good. She has a scholarship. We're not spending any money. Just let her go. The same thing with Carly. It was like, she has a scholarship. Let her go. They begged. Okay, after this, we, I or, they already had the person I'm going to get married to. I already knew who I was going to get married since I was a young girl. So it's pre-arranged marriage. So you, I already knew. They were like, okay, she knew she, she, she's going to marry this guy when she's done. So it was like, my, I'd go to my auntie, my mother's sister, um, my mother's uh, elder sister, who's passed now, rest in peace. But she was fighting for me a lot and my sister. Wow. Yeah. So you mentioned that you, uh, you know, obviously your why was the ability to eventually go on and have your own bed and own your home. And you said you don't want to go back to poverty. And that was a a big motivation for you. Was that the same with school? Because you mentioned you're very good at school. This was something that that you worked hard at. Did you work hard? Like with school in your mind, your ticket out at that at that moment? Did you know, okay, if I if I really crush it in school if I study and I get good grades this could be my ticket out of this life so for me I was like okay if I do so great and every exam I'm top of my school I will always have scholarship so where where I'm from is nepotism for you to get scholarship you have to be have a connection to the government or something I have none of those connections so the only way to get through is to be the best from my school the best out of outstanding one so I was hoping if, we, if I can get to that top, they would not say, oh, we don't have money for her to go, or we don't have this. It would just be, oh, she has a scholarship. What are you What are you losing? Like, it's nothing. Just, she's just going to go. And that's how it happened. Wow. Okay. That, this is a, an amazing story. I'm mean, again, I thank you for, for the vulnerability here. Tell us a little bit about, you know, your first entry point into real estate. Was that here in the States? Was that back in Africa? No, so it it started in the in the states here. I okay. with Africa, I just knew that I was gonna one day I'm gonna make it and buy a house. But at some point, I just wanted to get out because the more I go on my education, the more I know I, this is not what I want. I want more. So from high school, I know I want to go to college. I was like, this is gonna be a big deal for me to beg them to go. To, so I have to do really good for me to get a scholarship to get in. So me, uh, I made it to college. I ever because they eventually let me go to college. It was more like. Okay, you have to be a doctor. It's but African families they dictate your life. This guy, since you're a woman, so it's like you're gonna be a doctor. I I I have good grades in chemistry, but I don't like biology and chemistry at all, and I don't like blood. So I was like, I have to figure a way away. So there was this program, computer science, that was introduced because I was good at math. It kind of clicked for me, and I was like, this is what I want to do. And they're like, you don't want to be a doctor. I said, no, I don't want to be a doctor. So it clicked for me because I love programming, and that's how it is. So. Me being in the college, but the girls that I started with, all of them dropped out. So I, I, master, I did a bachelor's in computer science and a minor in mathematics. So during my final semester, at this point, there were just few girls or maybe two of us. I think two or one of us in a computer science class. So I'll go to some classes, all boys, right? So I was like, you know what? Let me start a nonprofit organization that's going to teach girls how to program, how to code, just basic IT skills. So I started this nonprofit organization. At that time, I wanted to have an internship at a software company in, in the country. Then. 
So I will use their computers and we will travel with the with the with my colleagues in the organization and teach girls basic IT skills like how to create a calculator, how to create folders and stuff like that. So it kind of took off and then different regions were doing it. So at that time there was this program called um, Mandela Washington Fellowship. And this time President Obama, this is 2016, President Obama was the president. So he started a a, a and a fellowship named it after Mandela in honor of Nelson Mandela. May he saw rest in peace, South Africa. And it's for young African leaders that, that are doing amazing things in their communities, like fighting wars, helping women, violence, crime, all that stuff. So a lot of people will send me this link and say, you need to apply because you're doing amazing things. I'm like, I can't compare to what these people are doing. But okay, I'll just apply. And I applied and I keep going. First interview at the U.S. Embassy, I was selected. Second one. And I moved on to the third one, and then they emailed me from D.C. and said, you got it? You're going to come to the U.S.? You're going to come to the U.S., and we're going to place you at Northwestern? And after your fellowship, you meet President Obama in D.C. So that's how wow. I came to the U.S. Yeah, That is amazing. And I mean, that was that a dream come true, or was that you, was that so far out? Because like for me, I, I imagine you, your dream was to go to college, but maybe I'm sure you never imagined this, right? So what did that feel like? It was, I was like a celebrity. My auntie was so happy. So that was also a ticket that now she has to push. They had to push my sister for me to come because my uncle would know that she, they were like, she did not even, she got picked by the U.S. government. Just let her go. She's going to come back. She's not going anywhere. So I was like, at that time, I was like, I'm not coming back to my this guy. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I, I, like there's so many other things for me. There's more for me to, to accomplish than just come back and get married. And that's it. And, and I, and that's what happened. So by then, I was already applying for other scholarship at that time. So by the time the U.S. Embassy was processing and we're doing the orientation of how it's going to be when I meet the president, all that stuff, I was already applying for schools here in the U.S. And I got a full scholarship to study at, at the University of Illinois. And yeah, I was like... When I come back, I'm not going back. <laughs> That's amazing. So you were studying, um, I guess, computer science or you I, so, in Africa, right? And then you come to Northwestern. And what are you studying at this point? It was business. Business and entrepreneurship. Yep. Okay. And so you um, obviously, you, you crush it. You make it. You finish the program. And you go into these respective careers? Or is this when your, your real estate journey begins? Yes. So when I left for the uh, presidential test, came back in with a student visa to study for my master's degree at University of Illinois. I was, because I was a student fellow, I was given a stipend of $1,000 and I worked for the university as a data site, data analyst. So I analyzed their data and they waived my tuition fee and they gave me a $1,000 stipend and a debit card, of course, a bank account. So I was, I had to find roommates just to, because I only have a thousand, I have to pay insurance, all of that. And for one student, insurance is very expensive. So 500 goes there. The fa- other 500 has to be rented, utilities and bus fare and all of that because I couldn't drive or I don't have a car. So with that 500, I have to find roommates to be able to, you know, get a place. So I have multiple roommates. So what happened was my my whole class mostly, what their parents will do is get them a place and then they will rent out the rooms. More like rent out the spaces in the room. So in one room, you can have, they could, so let's say the rent is $800, right? Or $1,000. They will rent out each room. They will rent out to international students to sleep on there. So the, the whole concept of 
uh, renting a room is more like renting a space. So you get your mattress and you share the one room with three other girls. So we were paying rent to them while they pay, take the money, make profit and take that money and pay their mortgage. We call that arbitrage. I was going to say, it's the ultimate house hack. House hack <laughs> arbitrage. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so it sounds like you saw that happening and instead of thinking, well, I'm being ripped off or that's not fair, they're charging more than they have to, you thought, oh, I want to be in that person's position. I want to own the asset and I want to be renting out to people, right? Oh, yeah. I was like, this is an amazing idea. I was like, I'm going to do this one day. So I always had, even when I was starting searching for my first property, I was looking for a property that has more than one unit. So yes. that way I could, yes. I could do <laughs> more rooms too. I love that. See, your data scientist brain was like, okay, the pattern that I need to catch on is a property with more than one unit, more than one bedroom, a lot of spaces that can be rented as opposed to a pretty kitchen or a nice backyard or you know the things that everybody else is, oh, I love the oak tree in the front yard. You're like, no, 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 there's no space in an Excel spreadsheet for an oak tree. I need to see the place that I can get the most beds into this unit. I love that. When did you start trying to invest in real estate yourself? Yes. So after I graduated, of course, I don't have any savings, but I don't have student debt. Right. And of course, coming as an international student, you get a social security. But I never knew anything about credit because I lived in a school setting. I work for the school. I go home, study, come back, work for school, go home, study, come back, go to class. That's all I knew. So there was no introduction to credit or anything, credit score. So I have a debit card that the bank gave me that I get my thousand dollars from that's it. So I don't have any credit. But again, when I graduated, I had a job to work for the CDC in Atlanta. So I moved from Illinois to um, Atlanta, Georgia, to work for the CDC as a data scientist. First couple of months, I started September 2019. Just a few months later, COVID happened. But before COVID happened, I've already started doing my research because I was like, I've never made that much money that I had. Right mm-hmm. At that time, I have saved of 8000 I'm like, I'm ready. But then, because I love reading. So I went and said, okay, my first paycheck, of course, I have to send money back home. And as an immigrant, you can ask any immigrant, especially from Africa, if you travel to the U.S. or travel abroad, you are like the ticket. So everybody depends on you. Every month you have to take care of your family and stuff. I'm like, this is not going to work out where I just work and send money. And that's it. But when does it stop? And how when do I save? So I said, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to take all what I save and then start investing in real estate. And of course, before thinking of, I already knew I would do real estate, but I don't have the knowledge. So what I did was I Googled, went on YouTube, and I see bigger pockets coming up a lot. So this is, <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> of course, and David, David and Brandon, every Wednesday, you guys have this uh, event that you do. That's me in there every day, listening. At work, I'm listening to a podcast. I'm cooking, I'm listening to a podcast. I'm in the train going to work, I'm listening to a podcast. So... By the time I was already uh, had so much information, I said, okay, they said the best way to get funding, of course, funding was number one, is to go and work with local banks. I was like, okay, I cannot afford Georgia, of course, at the time. It's like, let me start with where I saw what I wanted to do, which is Illinois. So I looked at properties in that area, the same city that I went to college in, and uh, Springfield, and it didn't, I, I wasn't finding properties. So I called different cities, different uh, banks in the city, made a list, and I call each of them. Every day I'll make different calls. And I get a lot of no's, but I'm used to getting no's. I didn't let that stop me. So I finally got one bank to listen to me. And I said, I just started working CDC. This is how much I make. This is just my base salary. But I'm going to get more 
as I go. And this is how much 8000 is what I saved up. I'm ready. I'm buying, looking for properties in this private room. So I already have my document and my speech ready for when I call what I say. And how many how many banks did you call, Yamu? Uh, it's a lot of banks. I think I listed all of that. I just went on Google and I listed all the banks. I called <laughs> okay. a lot of banks. I cannot, I cannot even tell the number. I called every bank in that city and in, around that area. And then finally you got one that, that would hear your story. Yeah. So so she actually, uh, she wasn't the, well, she's the vice president of the bank now, but before she wasn't. So she was like, well, I know you, I know you got all these great things and you know how to analyze properties and you know, you, you know what you want, what aspect you want to go to. However, you don't have any credit score. What you can do is go get a Discover credit card, Capital One credit card, and build your credit score. And then you can come back in six months or like in one year. So I was like, okay, at least she got to listen to me. And then I was like, you know what? Because every day I'm analyzing this. I'm a bigger pocket analyzing this every day. I was like, I got this. There's too many chairs. So what I did was I was like, this is what I would do. I found a property that was listed for 52000 It was a... Um, the owner, the owners were going through a divorce and they were desperate to sell, right? They wanted to get rid of it. They wanted to separate and do all of that stuff. So I was like, okay, found this property. I went on the contract even before <laughs> approaching the lady. So I approached her back and say, I found this property. It's 52000 It's three units. It, it, two bedrooms are, list, are rented for seven fifty. One bedrooms are rented for this much. Even if one, only one unit is rented, my mortgage would not be, I'd still cash flow. So I wrote the numbers down because I run it in the calculator and everything makes sense. So I submitted it to her and then I called her. I submitted it by email first and then I called her. She was like, you know what? We'll give you a chance. And they were like, we'll finance it. And that's how it happened. Okay, so you call, uh, you go down a list of basically every bank uh, in the city. You keep hearing no, 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 but not a big deal because you're used to hearing no's. So you just keep going. Finally, someone is willing to hear you out. And before you actually get the pre-approval or the approval from them, you find this house and you say, I'm just going to make an offer. I'm going to get it under contract and I'll figure out the financing later. And so you get it under contract and then you go to your banker. You're like, hey, I got it. Hello. Can you approve me? And they're like, all right, we're going to make an exception for you. And then they basically fund the loan. Yeah, they funded it. They were like, well, the reason why we did it is because it's not like your credit score is bad. You just don't have history. Right. So I, because my credit is fresh, so it doesn't have history, but it's not bad. And I don't have any other debt. I don't have any other expenses. I don't own a car at the time. I don't, I'm not paying anything except those two credit cards she told me. And I was already paying those off for two months before she was like, okay, we'll do it. Wow, that's amazing. So you buy this property and you said, all right, even if I just rent one, I'm going to cash flow. What ended up happening? Did that property end up filling up more than that? How many units was it? It's three units and it's a, a two bedroom. It's a mix of two bedroom, one bedroom. Everything that could go wrong in a deal went wrong in the property. Turned out the property manager, the numbers that they, the, the agent sent me were wrong. The tenants were not actually paying because it's a COVID at this time. I closed on that property April 17. It was already shut down already. This is COVID time. The one tenant that was about to leave, and and then there's another tenant that uh, hasn't paid for like one year, and then there was one unit that was vacant. So them telling me they fully occupied and was bringing this much was all a lot. So what I did was the unit that was the tenant was about to leave was in a better shape. So we just I just painted that, just basic cleaning and painting, and then rented that out. 
So while all this that was rented, the rent was coming in. After there was an announcement that the government is going to, the city were giving out to people that were behind on rent. So remember that the, the landlord and everyone has lied to me already at that point. So the tenant that was, that, that was supposed to get that amount of money, about eight months worth of rent, was sent to me directly because it was supposed to be an application between the landlord and the tenant. So we applied together and she got 8000 So I took that 8000 and I put it to, to renovate the other units. And now it's cash flow for 2000 a month and my mortgage is only $300. Wow, that's amazing. Okay, yeah. so so a bit of a rocky start, um, but then you're able to sort of work it out. And out of curiosity, because you said at this time you were working for the CDC, right? Uh-huh. Okay, so was this like particularly a difficult time? Because obviously you're working for the CDC, COVID is happening. I'm sure you're busy doing your, your actual job. And then you're also getting into real estate. Everything is going wrong. So you're trying to have it. You, obviously, you have to balance everything. Was that overwhelming or was it like, you know, no, no big deal? It was overwhelming, but it taught me so much. So at that time... In my, my team, everyone, well, everyone in my team is a, is a, is a lab scientist. So we work in the lab. I'm the data scientist. So every time a lab scientist go into the lab, let's say they go at 2 a.m., I have to be up by 4 a.m. to run the data so they can run it, so they, they can get the report to send it to a particular state. So imagine all the data that's coming on all 50 yeah, states about COVID. Yeah, it was a lot. So I will be up at 4 a.m. I will have my laptop waiting to analyze data while I'm also checking my real estate and trying to figure out what the numbers and everything. So it was not easy at all, but I was still listening to podcasts. I never get, I was already in, I had to figure it out, but right. it was not an easy time. Yep. It was it. Right. And so you go on to buy more properties, but you, you said that you were sort of struggling. You were kind of saving and maybe you had to send a little money to your family back home and then you had to renovate this property. So how did you keep saving money or how did you save money to keep buying more property? Was there a specific skill or strategy that you developed? Yeah. So when the, when I got that first property stabilized, I I was like, okay, what next thing I need to do is move on because I don't I don't have I'm not having any much cash flow coming in at that time. So the property was actually cash flowing a lot, like two thousand a month. But however, I'm not getting the the money. Like it's going back to the property manager. Turns out the property manager was stealing from me every time I talked to him. He was he he's, he he said he uses his card to to pay his contractor because most property managers come with their own team. So he said he paid his contractor. For example, let's say he said I paid a contractor five thousand to do the flooring and paid for this for this unit, right? And and I and I would just do that my calculation like the numbers are not making sense, but I know that it's cash flowing, right? Because the tenants are paying at this point. And uh, my contact, my property manager always say. Oh, Chester this or Chester that. So I know the, the contractor's name is Chester. Of course, I'm the, I'm a data scientist. If I want to find data anywhere, I would find it. So I went and researched on him. It's a small town. I researched on him. I found him. And I was like, hey, my name is Yamu. I know that you, know, you don't have to answer these questions, but I have this property in this place. And this is the address. And I know you walked on it. So he responded back and said, yes, I will. I was like, can, I, can we jump on a call? And he was like, yeah, sure. So I asked him. I was like, does this receipt make sense? Did you charge me this much? He said, well, I don't know. It's an honest guy, older guy. He was like, I don't know how much you guys talked about, about your contract, but I will never charge these prices. And, uh, and, and this other receipt is not even for your property. This is for another property. So it turns out that he was charging me 
giving, sending me receipts because I'm out of state investor, right? He was sending me receipts of all the properties that he was working on. And I was just paying for that. So I fired him. And of course, I stayed with the contractor. And he's, he's a full-time contractor for me now. We have an amazing relationship. So even though everything went wrong, I got my team from there. And he's made me billions. So Wow. I learned. <laughs> I learned. And I've been with him ever since. Worked on all my properties. It must have been actually great, though, that he ended up being a lot cheaper than you thought, right? <laughs> so whenever you yeah. used him again, it was actually more affordable. So... Uh, how, how was it working with him? I mean, was he, because you said you work with him to this day, was he a large part of a lot of the projects that you went on to go and, and work on? Oh, yeah. He worked with all my properties in Illinois. So I invested in uh, the Midwest, Illinois, uh, Cleveland, uh, uh, Ohio, Illinois, and Georgia here. So all my properties, majority of my properties are in Illinois. He worked on all of them. Wow. But that's how I scaled. And, and then, yeah. So scaling from that property after finding him, I was like, okay, I'm not going to find a deal that's as amazing as the 52 unit, $52,000 property. That's three units that I placed for almost 90000 after a few months of fixing it. So I went, I was like, okay, where else could I invest in? Of course, I went back to bigger pockets. At this time, I'm so active. So I was like, what do I do next? So a lot of investors were talking about, but especially California investors, just who are buying in Cleveland. They have properties there, cash flow is great. They was like, okay, maybe I should look into Cleveland. So I went on bigger pocket and I went and searched Cleveland investors. So of course you have segments of like if you want to invest in a city, you find those investors there. So I reached out to them, hey, my name is Young. I'm a new investor. I'm looking to invest in Cleveland. So I get a lot of responses. So we'll say, don't invest here. This is the A area, this is B area, this is C area. But the area that they're recommending for me to invest in, I can't afford that. So I was like, I'll stick with a CD area and then grow up from there. And that's what I did. So I found this duplex in Cleveland that's listed for 68000 So the owner has listed two of them, actually. So I wanted both of them because at this time, my cash flow at my property, Section 8, like all three units, cash flow is coming in. The bank is impressed with that. So again, I bid the documentation, put all the numbers together. And I sent it to them. They were like, yeah, we'll finance it. And this was your second deal, right? Your second and third second deal, deal in the two duplex? Yep. Okay, cool. Yep, yep, yep. So the bank was like, yeah, we'll finance it. Even if it's out of state, the numbers look great. 68000 mortgage was two, 250 something. I was, it's two units. One was seven something. So when the other one was six something. So I was getting like 1345 or 1350 or something like that. And the, the tenant paid all the utilities. I only pay water and sewer. Okay, so walk us through this really fast. Your first property, you said you bought it for like fifty five thousand. You fix it up, it appraises for ninety thousand. So you've built in forty thousand dollars of equity. You're like, okay, I think, I think I experienced probably the worst part of it. I'm going to do it again. And then you go and buy two duplexes, and the bank finances those. And then just for for reference, how many units did you actually end up adding to your whole portfolio in year one? In year one, I think about. Maybe at least seven. Wow. I think seven or eight. Yeah. First year of real estate investing with no foundation other than listening to bigger pockets and doing research and everything like that. Listening to, to the great uh, David Green and Brandon Turner. And you're like, okay, I'm going to do this. And then you go out and you buy seven properties. So you get that first one, two duplexes. Tell us about the next four really fast. Yeah. So the next one, I was like, okay, at this point, I'm getting cash flow. I'm getting a lot of cash flow and I just got promoted like my job. So I was like, okay. From this, I want to scale more. What can I do, right? So at this point, I'm looking at, I was like, how about I take the cash flow, wait a few months, and buy a really cheap house? So I already built a relationship with that contractor. 
So what I did was I bought, I found this property for like fifteen thousand. It was it was also a foreclosed property, so I got it for cheap. They probably got it for less than that, but I got it for cheap, and it was a five bedroom, two bath. So my contractor charged me nine thousand to fix it up. Even even at that point, I don't have nine thousand. I think I have like three thousand at that point that I have in my savings, and the rest I was expecting it to come from the cash flow because. I'm getting, you know, 2000 here and 1300 over there. So I was going to pay him in installment. So that's how I got that. Once once I fixed it up, I rented it on Section 8 as well. And then I had equity in that property. So the bank was like, you can pull out equity from your property if you want to scale. That's how I did that. David, th- there's a term for doing that, right? When you when you like <laughs> fix up a property and then you take the money out. <laughs> yeah. And there's also a method to scaling. Both of which can be found at biggerpockets.com slash store by yep. checking for the Burr book or the scale book. You know, Yamu, I wanted to ask, <laughs> did you get these ideas? Because you're kind of like tinkering with different real estate investing strategies. You've got the arbitrage thing you talked about, rent by the room, section eight, a little bit of long distance investing as well. You've been working into this, right? Did all of this come from Bigger Pockets? Yes, it did. And I know you're going to ask me in the end, what's my favorite book? And I have it here. <laughs> so this makes sense to me because I live in Atlanta. At the time, there's no way I can afford properties in Atlanta at that time, mm-hmm. except with the credit score. So I could only afford outside. Like, it doesn't have to be your background. And I, me learning that from Bigger Boss, like, whoa, a light bulb went. I was like, of course, I can do it. I think. But a lot of people that I talked to, even at work, my colleagues, they were like, there's no way you can. Being a landlord's hard. You cannot fix a toilet while you're out of state. And I'm like, there is the method. Yeah. I've already read and there's like I've listened to multiple people do it. Why can't I do it? Well, when you mentioned that you found the better property manager that allowed you to scale, that's what I thought of was sometimes we just kick around trying to figure out this is going wrong, that's going wrong, and it affects your emotions. You just don't, you're not excited about buying more real estate because it feels like just nothing but problems. You got ripped off by the first contractor. That would make anybody want to quit, right? Like once you get your heart broke, you don't want to love again. You don't want to put yourself out there and find somebody else. So you just quit. But when you found the right person, it changed your process to be emotionally excited instead of emotionally discouraged. And so the core four, I'm sure, really helped. Can you remind me, where were you at with passive income at the end of year two? By year two, uh, year two by eighty thousand. Cause I'm, I'm this April, this last April is my third year of investing. So by twenty twenty two, I was making like eighty thousand. That's gross rents, correct? That's not your profit. No, no, that's no, that's that's profit. Wow, you're making eighty thousand profit after your second year. <laughs> yeah, that's profit. Wow, after your second year. What about your first? What was your first year? Do you know off the top of your head? I think the first year I was close to like six, seven thousand. But then what happened was I got a package deal, so it escalated fast. With that package deal, some of the units turnover was like two weeks, three weeks. So my contractors would actually go into the unit and leave there, to the property and leave there. So they would stay there for that two weeks while, while they fixed it. So I was renovating houses faster. So what happened was the reason why I scaled faster is with the cash flow. So everything I was getting, my expenses did not increase, nothing. My lifestyle didn't increase. It was just the same. So it's a matter of how much can I buy? Because I do have a team that's willing to do the work. So what happened was, and my LinkedIn, I was getting a lot of um, messages from other companies, especially the pharmaceutical companies, to work for them. I said, well, I have a job. Why? How can I work two jobs? Because me as an international person, I didn't know you can have two jobs in the U.S. So one of my friends that I met from Bigger Pockets, we got connected from Bigger Pockets, and we find our own mastermind, and every Sunday we talk and we hold each other accountable. I can say accountability group. They were like, 
we have two jobs. Why can't you do it? I was like, okay. So I took that second job as a uh, statistical programmer for LabCorp. It's a six-figure job. I did the interview. I didn't think I was going to get it. The next day they called me. They were like, you're amazing. You can start on Monday. I was like, okay. So I got I that six-figure job. So I was dumping all that money into buying more real estate. So I was buying packages at this point and just joining them on Section 8. So you're working a full-time job for the CDC. You join, you have like a mastermind with people from the Bigger Pockets community. They're like, we all have two jobs. You should have one too. And you're like, all right, sure. You go, you apply, you get a six-figure job. And then they're like, yeah. So now you're making really good W-2 income. And instead of spending it going out and just having fun, you're like, I'm just going to put it all into houses. Everything. Everything into houses. So I'll buy package deals, five units package deals. Uh, six unit here, five uh, five single properties. So I was just doing and flipping them. Okay. All right. So you um. All right. So you said your first year passive income six seven thousand or something like that. Year two, it goes from six seven thousand dollars of passive income a year, right? And the year two, it's eighty thousand dollars of passive income. Yeah. Are those numbers right? Yes. Okay. The reason why it got to 80,000 is because at this time, COVID had happened, 2021, everybody's talking about 2021, 2022, everybody's talking about Airbnb, short-term rentals. So in Atlanta, everybody was talking about it. So it's like social media. So my social media page, what I did was I created a new page and I followed just real estate, everything that has to do with real estate. So I get a lot of people advertising about, you know, you can get a property, you can you can do uh, Airbnb without owning a property. I was like, hmm, okay. So I looked into that, buy a few courses here and there, hundred dollar here, one fifty here, and I joined these masterminds. And I was like, I'm just gonna jump in and do it. I created an LLC just like the the courses would say, and I approached apartment complex here. So I was like, how about I get these in my LLC name and I can arbitrage it. So I got one unit, I arbitraged it, and my and. Two weeks, three weeks into into it, or three months into it, I got a booking for forty thousand dollars. So the company <laughs> oh, booked for this nice. guy. Yeah, the company booked for him from New York. He's gonna be working in Atlanta for one like one like a whole year. So it's like forty four thousand dollars. And I was like, this is a no brainer. So I got multiple. Now I have eight units in Atlanta. That's really cool. So you're let me just clarify something. When you said your year two, your passive income was eighty thousand. Was that eighty thousand per month or per uh, year? It's per month. So Oh my gosh. Yeah. So my section is we're bringing in about fifteen, sixteen thousand, right? Uh-huh. And then I was making my yeah, I was making about forty something thousand on 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 uh Airbnb with the multiple properties. Wow. Okay. So okay. So year two is eighty thousand per month. I thought it was per year, and I was like, oh, eight thousand bucks a month. I mean, most people work for like ten years to get to that level, just eight thousand dollars a month. So you're getting eighty thousand dollars per month. Um, yeah. And so you get into the Section Eight game, you get into medium term rentals, and you do arbitrage. Were any of those your favorite, or were they all just like fun because it's all just new? Section 8 was more of uh, a dream to give a family a home. The midterm renters were more of me buying and scaling. So why, when I, in 2021, when I, was buying, when I was doing the arbitrage, I was like, okay, I already have a, a, a bad run real estate where I own my own properties. How about I take this money instead of renting from apartment complex here? How about I buy my own apartment complex? That's, why, that's how the 80000 came about for months. So what I did was, I was like, okay, I'm going to take this method in Atlanta, the, the arbitrage, but use the money to buy my own apartment instead of single families and rent it on Section 8. So I found this property that's listed for in the same city that I, I invest in my uh, Section 8. 
I got, I found this property that was listed for 145. It was abandoned for two years and the landlord just wanted to sell and get it rid of it. So there was a fire incident that happened and he was going through a lot of violations. So he had the city remove most of the violations, but it was almost at the end. So when I came in, I offered 120 and he, 120 and he accepted. At closing, I got about 5,000. Again, I approached the bank and I told them the method that I'm doing. So I always keep, I had this relationship with the bank already. I always make sure they know what I'm doing. So I told them about the, about the short-term rental, mid-term rental. And they were like, that's not going to work in a small city like this. What they don't know is that property works for me because at this point I have experience with travel nurses. So that property was between two hospitals, 1.6 miles from another one hospital and 1.2 miles from another hospital. So it's perfect for me. I did the analysis, the market research. And most of the people that were renting to travel nurses there were like a month of past. So let's say a family has a basement and they were renting it to travel nurses or a shared room or something. I was like, well, if I have this property, which is eight units and multiple mixture of single one bedrooms and studios, I could do that too. So that's how I, the bank was like, we thought you were crazy, but this is, this is amazing <laughs> number. So with that property that helped me scale to 20,000, because when I, when, when I had my contractor going there and he leased one album from that city, he came in there, he gave me a quote for 85,000. So I gave it to the bank. They were like, okay, we'll finance it. So of course I put 20% down. And my contractors, they gave me, they were like, it's a lot of work that it needs. What you can do, what we can do is waste the, you know, to give you a grace period of three months. So you don't pay, you only pay interest. That's amazing. So my contractor was like, we will move it. I will fix it from up and move our way down. So while they were fixing, but let's say they fixed two units, I'll furnish it and have nurses on it. I will listen to have nurses already coming in. So by the time it was, it was almost complete. I wasn't paying, in, I was only paying interest, no mortgage. That property alone brings me 22,000. That's how I scaled to the 80. Wow, 22,000 a month. A month. 22, 23, 24 here. Yeah, you know, just, yeah, just 22 to 24,000. Like, no, no big deal. Be conservative. Yeah, so my mortgage was just 1,200. And then each unit, <laughs> each unit, I'd pay like utilities for 100, uh, 1,200 with my mortgage. And each unit utilities is like $100, 110. 120, something like that. Are you about to sell a property? Wait like 60 seconds because this could save you thousands. Our friends at 1031 Pros have saved their clients more than half a billion dollars with a B in taxes with 1031 tax deferred exchanges. With the 1031 exchange, you can say goodbye to the huge capital gains taxes when selling and roll your property's profit into another investment that could make you even more. Whether you're an individual investor, part of a larger group, or a title or real estate agent, 1031 Pros is ready to help. Trust me, I've done 1031 exchanges on multiple properties before, and it has saved me tens of thousands in taxes, if not more. With over 30 years of experience, 1031 Pros has handled over 20,000 audit-free exchanges, and they specialize in all types of exchanges, delayed, simultaneous, reverse, and improvement exchanges in all 50 states. And right now, Bigger Pockets listeners can get $250 off any exchange by visiting my1031pros.com slash BP. That's my1031pros.com slash BP to get $250 off today. Oh, and make sure to mention Bigger Pockets when you call. They take care of our people over there. Whether you need to buy or sell, or you're just obsessed with looking at homes for sale, 
Redfin's got you covered. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes to help you see new homes first. And they give you personalized recommendations based on the homes you like, so you can find a home that's just right for you, whether that's a cabin, a craftsman, or a castle. With the top-rated Redfin app, you can favorite homes, share listings with others, and schedule tours even on the same day with a local Redfin agent who can help guide you through the whole home buying process. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents have the experience to help you get the best price possible for your home. That's because they sell twice as many homes as other agents. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge, which means you'll have more money to put towards what matters most to you, like your next home. In fact, last year, Redfin saved home sellers $127 million. No matter where you are in your real estate journey, Redfin can help. Download the Redfin app to get started today. Your competitors are fighting for your customer's attention. So how do you stand out? Easy. Constant Contact. Constant Contact's award-winning marketing platform has helped millions of small businesses stand out, stay top of mind, and see big results fast. Reach new audiences, grow your customer list, sell more, raise more, and fast-track your growth. Constant Contact makes it easy to promote your business through email and SMS marketing, social media, and even events management. Don't know much about marketing? Don't sweat it, because Constant Contact's writing assistance tools and automation features help you say the right thing at the right time, every time. And with my boot camps and live events, I just don't have the time to clone myself. So I just let Constant Contact do the marketing for me, and you should too. So get going and start growing your business today with the free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. Okay, I've got I got two questions I want to ask. The first is, do you have one person managing all these assets in different locations, or are you doing that yourself? No. So I Cleveland, I have a property manager. Cleveland properties, remember, they came in with tenant occupied already. So I was managing for a while, but when I was scaling with the Midtown Rentals here, I have to find somebody to manage it. So I have a property manager in Cleveland. And of course, in each of the cities, the closest cities will have one property manager. Yeah, you really are following the long distance real estate. And then you oh, yeah. you manage those individual property managers, right? Oh, yes. Okay. Next question. How are you running your numbers? Like you've got a different approach to this. And I'm, I'm curious if your data scientist background led to you looking at things differently. But can you share what your system looks like when a property comes your way and a bank thinks, well, this is all the income it would generate? You're able to generate more than that. What are you doing differently? Yes. So I, I, this is how I run my numbers, right? If, if the numbers don't make sense, I'm not going to push it just to say I have this unit. For Section 8, I want to get at least 800 to 1,000 profit, right? Because it comes with more work, more attention and everything. With short-term rentals, I was just looking to scale. So it depends on how much I furnish it. If I'm going to put $2,000, $3,000 or up to $5,000 per unit, I want to get at least $1,000. So with Atlanta, I could get all the way profit to $2,000, especially at the peak season, per profit per door. So that's how I run it, depending on how the property was with, with uh, section eight, section eight. I'm looking at at least a thousand because it needs more work mm. and I have to have pay the property manager maintenance, of course. So I include all of that. So that's how I run the numbers. Okay. And I'm going to assume you're also factoring in, they need to cash flow more because in some of these areas you're buying in, you mentioned C to D areas, they're not going to appreciate as much. And the headache factor is higher. So you have to make up for that by getting more cash flow to make the juice worth the squeeze, so to speak. And that's where you came up with these numbers, right? Yes. 
for people who hear this and they think, I want to do what she's doing, which I'm sure everybody's going to be thinking, what are some of the challenges that people need to be aware of if you want to grow a portfolio the way you grew yours? There's so many challenges. You're going to go through crappy contractors. There's no investor that's going to tell you, oh, yeah, Mike, I have one contractor from day one, never stole from me, nothing. <laughs> I went through crappy contractors to get there. Property managers, even though you have a property manager, doesn't mean you don't manage. You still have to run the numbers to make sure this makes sense. Because if I didn't do that, I wouldn't know that a property manager was stealing from me or even sending me receipts of other properties, right? There's, it's not it's not an easy day, easy way out. You have to figure it out. You have to run the numbers. And of course, you have to always analyze deals for it to make mm -hmm. sense. If it doesn't make sense, you can't force it. There's also, I'm hearing you mention there's a lot of management that goes into the properties once you have them. You have to look very close, which I think you learned at a relatively early stage because in one of your first deals or the first deal, you were taken advantage of. Yes. That separated you from this idea of passive income that you just bought it, forgot it. And there's nothing more to it. That rhyme, maybe we need to start saying that. But you have to pay attention to your investments, that it's not a thing that runs itself. Like it's often described that you buy a property, it's turnkey, it makes money, and you just go have fun on the beach or vacation everywhere. And your real estate pays for all of it. You don't have to still work. Has that been your experience or has it been more like it's a second job? Or, or a third job for Yamu. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, well, now, now that I've, I, well, not mastered it, but now that I've learned, I've gone through so much mistakes and I've learned, I can say I could go chill at the beach now. So I've mm -hmm. got everything in place. I have a property managers in place, I have systems in place, I've automated things. But the beginning, no, you have to actually work the business to actually make it work. You can't just buy and just forget it. There's so many things that is involved with it. Yeah. So now I do daily, day to day stuff like, I have a VA that go through my funds, final messages. I have property managers that do all I do now is sign leases and analyze this. So Yami, you're, you know, obviously you, you came from Africa. I got to imagine that the tax code is very different there than it is here. Um, so you come here, you're crushing it. You're making $80,000 a month. You have two full-time jobs. You're making six figures on the W-2 side of things. Tell me a little bit about your tax situation once you actually started really making money? Was this like a big shakeup for you where you're like, oh my gosh, I have to pay the government money? Like what, what was that whole situation like? That, that's, that's a really good question. Like it's a shock coming from Africa where we don't pay taxes like that. So the beginning I have, I had already had my son and because I wasn't making a much, I actually get to get a tax refund. I was like, this is American. This is amazing. America is nice. At the end of the tax, you get money. And then I started investing in real estate. And then when CPA tells me, you're going to be paying the IRS $30,000. I was like, what? I was like, <laughs> I was like, no. But in real estate, when you invest, you get to say, it was like, no, but you, not when you make millions. And I was like, what? That's when I realized like uh, what my tax, tax bracket was. And then he said, and also your W-2 is not helping because you have two W-2s that are paying you six figure now. And I was like, oh my God. He's <laughs> like, if it wasn't for real estate, you would be paying way more to, to IRS than what you're. So the real estate is actually saving you. And then I was like, yeah, this is, this car continue. I can't pay the IRS this much. So of course I let the four months ago, I let the LACO joke go and I just stick with the CDC one. Because now it doesn't really make sense having that kind of cash flow. Especially when I added my Savannah properties here that are bringing me about fifteen, sixteen thousand a month in just Savannah, Georgia. I was like, it doesn't make sense for me to get two jobs now. So I let it go. 
Well, it's also probably really hard to achieve real estate professional status uh, with two full-time jobs and being the real estate thing. I know that there's always conflicting stuff on that. So um, this always reminds me of that. There's a meme out there that's like, it's the US government. They're like, all right, you have to pay us taxes. And then you're like, how much? And they're like, we don't know. And it's like, okay, what happens if I pay you too little? And they're like, oh, you owe us a lot of money if you do. We'll fine you. And it's like, what if I pay too much? And it's like, we won't tell you. You have to figure that out for yourself. And that's, that really is exactly what the, the tax system is. It's like, you don't know until your CPA is like, here you go. You owe $30,000, $40,000. Um, so you, you quit your job and did you figure out tax strategies or anything that was saving you money uh, in the long run? Like, were you doing any kind of cost segregation or any depreciation to knock down your tax bill? Yeah, so my CPA that I hired does all of that for me, and then we uh, uh, we have uh, meetings every quarter. So he tells me and project how much I'm gonna be um, uh, have. I, I remember one time it was like, you have you have about sixty forty sixty thousand dollars that you need to spend before November. And I was like, <laughs> oh okay. So I just dumped it on a property. I bought a property for forty thousand more house. I fixed it up. It appraised for two hundred thousand. <laughs> it sounds like Rob's tax strategy. He's just like that. I owe how much? <laughs> I'm going to go buy something right now. Yeah, exactly. I'm like, all right, let's write it off, baby. It's a write-off. You guys ever seen that Shit's Creek where he's like buying everything? And they're like, you can't just keep buying it and saying it's a write-off. I'm like, it's a write-off. It's a write-off. Who pays for it? The government. The government. The, <laughs> the write-off write people. people. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so let me get a recap of your overall portfolio, Yamu. You have Cleveland properties, and those are mostly Section 8, correct? Uh-huh. Okay, you have Savannah, Georgia properties. How are those being operated? So those are uh, midtown rentals. And then where else other than Savannah and Cleveland? So I have uh, Illinois, I have Springfield, I have Champaign, Urbana-Champaign, all that sub areas in Illinois. So I have like eight units here and there, five units. Those are all. So since I got the eight unit, it makes sense because I was getting so many inquiries for travel nurses and I'm not able to get them. But it's all booked out. I was like, I need another one. So I got another apartment complaint. I got another one. I got another one. I kept going. That's so cool. So I have a mix of short-term rentals. Mid- I have a mix of mid-term rentals, uh, Section 8. Okay. And how many units total are, are we at now? So I have 33, 33 doors, including the one that I just bought here. So that's 34. Wow. So you have about 34 doors now. 34, I think, is what you said. Uh-huh. When you were a kid, you sleeping on the floor, all you wanted was a bed of your own in a house. Yes. How does it feel to to achieve what you've achieved? It's it's unreal. Like it's sometimes like this is me. This is and sometimes and this is why I give a lot, especially when it comes to my team. So I know where I started, right? It's just so real for me. But I always knew that I wanted just one house. I wanted a nice bed. I wanted to experience what other kids experienced that I did it. But I never knew beyond my imagination. This is all God's work. God put me in this place to actually buy houses, fix them up, and give it to families. That's why I said earlier, I mentioned with Section 8, is more of me housing kids like me or someone who could not buy their own home. And then the short-term rentals just came into play. But it's so full, fulfilling for me. That's really cool. Is eight, eight-year-old uh, you proud of, of Yamu? Yes. I am very proud of myself. I'm so grateful to God. Well, you mentioned uh, the the tips with keeping your contractor happy. I'd love to end with that. If you have anything, anything you can share with the audience uh, about strengthening that relationship with your contractor and keeping them happy, I'd love to hear it. 
just to, just to say this, my husband says when my fo- when my contractor calls, my phone ring. It, I'm I'm so eager to take the call that anyone else, including him, I was like, well, he made me millions. <laughs> you did it. When they're walking, I buy lunch. When they send me pictures, and I'm so happy with the work, and I'm like, there's a me. So they're staying there. Yeah. And also, I stock their fridges, buy groceries, and send it because they stay there when they fix from the properties with his guys. So those are nice things. And I upgrade his phone. He's an older guy, doesn't like technology. <laughs> and just little things like that. That's really cool. Yeah. You got to take care of your contractors. I mean, finding a contractor that you click with is hard already, but finding a contractor that you can click with for five years is even harder. And I think, uh, yeah, got to keep them happy so that you can keep a lifelong of home building and home renovation going, you know? Well, Yamu, I think that we're all floored after listening to what you've done. I mean, you talk about it so nonchalant that you're doing this well. I mean, the collective jaws of the bigger pockets sphere have dropped as they were listening to this. We will definitely need to have you back to dive deeper into some of this because there's so many elements from the power of your story to the way that you've scaled to the passive income you're making to the systems that you've set up to how bigger pockets helped you learn all this. I think so many of us listen to this and we only see the reasons that it can't work. And you came in and said, wait, you're going to give me all this information for free. And you went and put it to play. And what do you know? You're one of the most successful investors that we have ever interviewed. And how many years has it been? It's going to be three years, April 17. <laughs> yeah, there's people that take three years and can't finish one of the books. I just like, I don't even know how to put into words what this has been like. It's just fantastic. And I really appreciate you sharing your story. Are there any last tips that you'd like to leave with our audience who are struggling to get started? It's just to start. And like, like Bigger Pocket said, analysis paralysis. If you stay there, you don't actually jump and do execution. It's not going to work out. You can listen to all the podcasts. You can read all the books. You can go to all the networking effects. You can do all of that. But if you actually execute, it's not going to happen. And I know it's scary, but you have to do it. Yeah. Well, when you grow up without a bed, I don't think you're as scared of failure as somebody who has never faced that level of adversity and the littlest amount of rejection seems overwhelming. So yeah, I just, I mean, who would have thought that those bed bugs would someday be a blessing, but like, maybe that could be the title of your book, how bed bugs become <laughs> blessings when you write it. Cause you definitely need to Rob, any, any last minute thoughts from you? No, just wanted to thank you, Yamu. I appreciate the vulnerability and the openness that you had with us. I know it's like, probably hard to talk about sometimes, especially, you know, coming on to bigger pockets. But I think there will be hundreds of thousands of people that listen to this podcast and their life will will change because of your story. So I just want to thank you. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure. Yep. It was a pleasure to have you. Uh, where can people find out more about you if they want to get in touch? So my Instagram is building wealth from rentals. I actually got that name from, I think Ashley has something like that. So <laughs> nice, when I was yeah. creating, yeah. So when I was creating my own page, I was like, this is for me. And it, it, I started as me just doing it to hold myself accountable. So I started to like document my own steps. I was like, what, what name can I get? And I was like, building wealth from rentals. So I started with that. So you can <laughs> find me at Instagram, building wealth from rentals and TikTok, building wealth from rentals. There you go. Send her a message. Rob, where can people find you? Well, you know, I mean, it, listen, it's not a big deal. All right. So I don't want everybody there, everybody that's listening to this to be like, whoa, that's crazy. That's a big deal. But, you know, y- your friend Rob here is now verified on Instagram. Mm. 
So if you look up Robilt, R-O-B-U-I-L-T, I'll have a little beautiful blue check mark next to my name. And uh, you'll never have to worry about me asking you randomly for crypto or to send me Forex. So uh, yeah, find me on Instagram. Look for the blue check. And I will never message you first. What about you, David? <laughs> uh, you can find me at davidgreen24.com. Uh, and you can also find me on all the social medias at David Green 24 including YouTube. Yeah, I'm still, my brain's still trying to wrap itself, Yamu, around how you did this in three years. It seems like it should have been full of holes, but as you've talked, we've seen very few holes in your entire strategy. It was like you were born to do this. I mean, like, it almost just seems like you had divine intervention. Thank you. That, Thank you. That you are a real life superhero. And I hope that your, uh, your husband knows that. You should go tell him as well as your kid. Thank you. <laughs> and you have another one on the way, right? Any day now. You're yes, gonna be... any day now. Any Aww, day now, she'll be here. Congratulations. <laughs> That's amazing. Congrats. Any day now. There you go. <laughs> yeah. Make sure that when you're listening to the podcast, you put your headphones around that so that she can hear all the things that you're learning. <laughs> I think she's gonna grow, she's gonna come to the world being an investor. Yes, that's <laughs> she exactly. So, she has listened to so many podcasts. <laughs> she's got no choice. That's awesome. All right, we'll let you get out of here. This is David Green for Rob. Quick, I need to buy a house so I don't pay taxes. I'm a solo. <laughs> Signing off. There's a reason small multifamily investing is so popular in the Bigger Pockets community. With just a 3.5% down payment, you can own up to four different units. Think about it. If you house hack and live in one of the units, you still have three different groups of tenants helping you pay down your mortgage every month, four kitchens and bathrooms you could renovate to increase your property value, four different Airbnbs, medium-term rentals, or other rental strategies that you can try in one property, all in just one transaction. Of course, the question is, where do you find a small multifamily property that you can actually afford? Which market and which deals are best for you? Once you close, how do you manage it, optimize it, keep scaling, and living your life without being tied down to four leaky toilets or four fussy tenants? All great questions, my friends. All to be answered in the upcoming small multifamily bootcamp with Chris Lopez and Leka Devatha. So if you're serious about growing your portfolio with this highly efficient strategy, head to biggerpockets.com slash four, F-O-U-R. Today, and join us in the small multifamily bootcamp. See you there. The content of this podcast is for informational purposes only. Past performance is not indicative of future results, and all hosts and participant opinions are their own. Investment in any asset, real estate included, involves risk. Use your best judgment and consult with qualified advisors before investing. Only risk capital you can afford to lose. BiggerPockets LLC disclaims all liability for direct, indirect, consequential, or other damages arising from reliance upon information presented in this podcast.